This podcast is made possible by Sage People and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Fong Lee, CFO of MicroStrategy, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 459. Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to CFO Reggie Hayes of CMS Energy, Michigan's largest electric and natural gas utility, serving nearly 7 million Michigan residents. Meanwhile, CMS's power generation ambitions today reach into several different states. We spoke to Reggie near the end of 2018 when he revealed how monitoring and mitigating risk remains a central mission for the energy giant's finance function. Our talk with Reggie Hayes begins after these words from our sponsor. Hello, Jack here. I have a message for you from the folks at Sage People. Decisions about your people should be driven by data. But is your HR department still using spreadsheets to keep track of your people? It's time to move to cloud. Understand what makes your employees tick. Know your best performers or determine absence trends. All with a cloud HR and people system. Sage People empowers organizations to respond quickly and easily to changing priorities in today's shifting world of work. It means you can make sure your workforce is able to adapt while staying connected and engaged wherever they are. Discover how to get instant insights at your fingertips. Visit us today at sageintech.com forward slash sage dash people. Energy, the giant Michigan energy company that's widely known as a public utility in Michigan where it provides electricity and natural gas to more than 6 million of Michigan's 10 million residents. Reggie, welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me, Jack. 
Wonderful to have you join us. It's been a while since we featured a, a finance leader from an energy company, at least one this size, that is. So uh, we've been looking forward to this, Reggie. And as you may know, we always begin by asking our finance leaders to look back for us and tell them, tell us a little bit about themselves and what were those career experiences they feel prepared them for their finance leadership roles. Reggie, what would you share with us? Yeah, I would say, um, again, well, first, uh, thanks again for the opportunity and delighted to be here on this call. Uh, and I would say there are a few items I could probably point to in my past. Uh, I spent about uh, just under a decade in Chicago in investment banking, uh, which was really a, an educational experience. Uh, obviously, there are a variety of things you can learn in that business, and I think a few that were particularly noteworthy and helpful uh, to my career at this point was that you know, as a banker, if you're doing corporate finance and M&A transactions, you really uh, develop pretty good instincts around a CFO or even CEO's hot buttons. And so with any transaction you're proposing or executing, you really focus on financial statement impact, earnings per share, cash flow, balance sheet implications, uh, and you really get a good understanding as to what a CFO or CEO might be paranoid about. And so that was incredibly helpful on the initial stages of my career also. Uh, undoubtedly, uh, that business does broaden your comfort zone. You encounter a number of complex situations, and I was a generalist uh, for most of my career, uh, and so I uh, saw a number of different sectors. And so when you're learning a new sector, dealing with a complex situation, you couple that with time pressure, um, it may age you a, a little bit, but you certainly do uh, broaden your comfort zone, and you get comfortable being uncomfortable, and I think that that's uh, served me well. Uh, in my time post-banking. Uh, so I would say certainly that is one. And I think the other thing you get out of banking is that, you know, you can go to business school and get a good, a good education around, I'll say, corporate finance and valuation theory. But until you kind of work in the real world and see uh, that in practice and how corporations actually really think through value creation, how they uh, convince uh, as fiduciaries, the board, as well as investment community, why transactions make sense, uh, that is really where you can uh, very uh, significantly deepen your knowledge of corporate finance and valuation theory. So it was good to see that applied in the real world. Uh, I would say another milestone was just uh, leaving banking and then just transitioning uh, to the corporate corporate side uh, of the world. And so I moved uh, to or from investment banking to a company called Exelon, a very large current energy company uh, in Chicago in 2009, and so that was my first taste of leading services, because prior to banking, I was a consultant and working within a corporation. I think there are a number of benefits of that experience, and so uh, first just seeing the inner workings of a corporation, how decisions are made, the interplay between all the functions, be they finance, legal, accounting, operations, engineering, and just seeing how those functions collaborate to make decisions, I think was incredibly helpful. Uh, when I joined Exelon, they were in the throes of a hostile transaction, and so I kind of stepped in from day one. Because of my skill set as a banker, I got a chance to really get involved pretty early on, but there were certainly things I had to learn in terms of how to coordinate and collaborate with other functions, and so it was a very good educational experience. Really from day one, uh, I think another uh, benefit of that corporate experience, both at Exelon and also ITC, where I worked after Exelon as a CFO, uh, you certainly develop a level of expertise um, 
both about the function which you're in and also about a sector once you work for a corporation. And so uh, really uh, get into the weeds there. And you, you, you learn very quickly the harsh reality that you live with all of the decisions. It's not like you move from transaction to transaction as a banker, but when you work within a company, uh, you intend to be there for a long time, in which case every decision you make, you have to know uh, the nitty-gritty details and be able to explain to the board or any constituent why you made the decisions you made. And so it really uh, allows you to get a, a good level of expertise on really every function uh, within a company uh, if you have any exposure to it. So I thought that was an invaluable experience. And I'd say lastly, uh, also uh, that opportunity, um, both again at Exxon and ITC and now currently at CMS, has allowed me to really refine my communication skills. And so uh, the difference between, you know, I'd say working in banking versus working in a corporation is that an investment bank, your audience will generally be limited uh, to the investment community, uh, in most cases, C-level executives and boards. Uh, but obviously, if you work at a public company, you're going to have a number of different constituents uh, to whom you have to speak. And so that includes customers, employees, regulators, uh, internal, uh, I'll say, peers who work across functions. And you're going to have to tailor the message because you'll have uh, varying levels of uh, sophistication uh, and just knowledge about what you're communicating. And so uh, it really forces you to make sure that you are tailoring the message to the audience and you're explaining things in a way in which uh, everyone can understand it because you are going to have a, a knowledge discrepancy. And so I'd say those are some of the um, major uh, milestones uh, that have been helpful for where I am today. And then lastly, just once I became CFO at ITC and currently in this role here at CMS, um, you know, there's certainly a unique experience in being any C-level executive. So your first earnings call, um, the opportunity to lead large teams, and just the accountability that goes with roles like that, uh, that has certainly, uh, I think, prepared me well. And so in my second CFO opportunity, I certainly think that those prior experiences, banking, working at Exelon, ITC, and then also serving as CFO for ITC have been invaluable experiences. Now, like many finance leaders, as they built their careers, uh, can't help but notice the downturn uh, happens in the middle of yours and so many others. Um, and, and you arrive at Exelon sort of in the aftermath of the financial collapse. Did that have any, uh, did the financial collapse have any impact or downturn on your career path, your thinking about finance, your decision to move to a new industry? I'd say without a doubt. Um, so I was, uh, when I left, I was at Lazard and I was focused on M&A. And, and when I left that business in 09, it was still the throes of the crisis. And so I left that business in January uh, of 2009. And so you really were still in the middle of that major correction and the credit crisis. And, you know, at that point, I really enjoyed the investment banking business. And the natural trajectory for bankers in most cases is you either stay in banking for a while or you potentially move on to private equity and or hedge funds. And so that was certainly something I was contemplating. But uh, certainly with the credit crisis and basically that sector turning upside down, and I'll just give you anecdotally, uh, our Lazard M&A practice went from about 20 bankers down to about four or five uh, within a quarter. And I succumbed to that. And so... Uh, I said to myself, I almost had this epiphany where I said, well, you know, it would be nice to find something a little less cyclical um, and a little less transactional. Um, and so in speaking with a number of mentors and really just doing uh, some, uh, a good deal of research on 
uh, sectors that would be interesting and really just a bit of luck too. Uh, a colleague of mine called me and he was at Exelon and um, you know, started talking to me about the sector and the opportunities uh, that were within Exelon because they were in the throes of a hostile transaction. Uh, I really started to get an appetite for the power and energy space uh, and there's a good deal of non-cyclicality to it uh, that I've appreciated over time because people generally need uh, heat and electricity irrespective of economic cycles. At ITC Holdings, uh, perhaps that was your first finance leadership role, you step into uh, the CFO office for, for really the first time, I believe, um, and, and likewise, you move to CMS uh, after four years at ITC Holdings. So I, I'm, I'm curious, what was the opportunity at CMS that you saw? What was uh, the role that you could finally realize for yourself at CMS? Yeah, um, well, let me give uh, just off a little bit of clarity on uh, the ITC role. So when I joined ITC in uh, February 2012, I actually joined as treasurer, and so I didn't initially uh, become CFO. Uh, and it's interesting, I, I joined as treasurer and had kind of this five-year plan because uh, the guy who hired me, the CFO, uh, was an excellent executive, and I just assumed he'd either become the CEO or maybe in five to ten years get uh, poached and there could be an opportunity. And so my goal was to just serve as uh, perhaps his apprentice, learn as much as possible, learn the business, um, and hopefully at some point be ready. And again, it was about a five to ten year plan, and uh, <laughs> he ended up getting poached in about two and a half years. Uh, so I got a battlefield promotion, and uh, again, to this day, so very fortunate that the board and the senior team had confidence in me stepping into the role. And so I was in that role for about two and a half years, and that role concluded with our sale uh, to uh, Fortis Inc., a large uh, parent energy company based in Newfoundland. And so I led the strategic review uh, in the 2015 timeframe. We sold the business. Um, and I'll say we signed in February of 16 and then got it closed in late 2016. And uh, around that time frame, the uh, CMS opportunity started to materialize um, because they were uh, in the throes of succession planning. And so the opportunity came around. And so I wasn't, I'll say, actively looking, but this opportunity seemed attractive. They were, again, looking for a natural successor to their CFO who was retiring. And what was attractive to me about the CMS opportunity is uh, I obviously thought it was a hell of a company. They had done well, I think, a decade and a half of um, consistent industry-leading sector uh, growth. Um, and they had, had uh, just wonderful uh, total shareholder returns. So the investment community uh, viewed them very highly. The company had wonderful, I'll say, uh, customer-oriented nature about it, strong workforce, and just seemed to have a very, uh, I'll say, constructive environment across the executive team, and so it was very attractive to me. And also it just offered, a, I think, additional scope and complexity uh, relative to my prior role. It's about two times the size uh, in terms of market cap of my prior company. Uh, has about, I'll say, 7x the number of employees, about 4 or 5x uh, the number of assets on the balance sheet, and so just more scale and scope. And so uh, for anyone who's uh, sort of aspirational and ambitious, this seemed like a very nice, natural uh, trajectory uh, for me to step into, and so it just seemed like a great opportunity, and obviously during the recruiting process, I got a chance to meet uh, all of the senior team, as well as a couple of board members, and it just seemed like a really nice fit, and I obviously uh, had gotten along with everybody uh, during that process, so just a wonderful opportunity that I'm so fortunate to be in it today. 
trying to understand your day-to-day, if what are the, the numbers that, you know, you're, you're constantly keeping track of, what would you tell us? What's always top of mind for you? Yeah, I would say uh, well, there's no substitute for the financial performance of the business. I mean, we uh, you know, have delivered, as I mentioned, uh, for the last 15 years, uh, consistent industry-leading performance, and certainly a CFO. Um, you know, I do feel responsible for making sure that we continue on that path. And so I look at a few metrics, I'll say, on a periodic basis and quite frequently that uh, allow me to have good visibility on the performance of the business. And so uh, on a daily basis, usually towards the back end of each month, I get visibility in our margins across our electric and gas business. And so it's simplistically uh, sales uh, less our operating expenses, and that gives me good visibility on a daily basis as to how uh, the business is performing, and we're in the time of the year now where we're trying to deliver on our 2018 financial objectives and obviously uh, meet our earnings per share guidance. And so I look at the margins, see how they're trending. Uh, weather, as you may know, has a pretty material impact on our business. Uh, obviously, when it's really warm uh, during the summer and spring and early fall, you can uh, see those meters spin quite a bit. People turn on air conditioners. Uh, quite uh, at high levels, and that drives power consumption, which drives sales. Uh, and so that's uh, obviously helpful to our performance. And in the winter, uh, when you have those meters skinning because people are turning on uh, those heating systems, that's also helpful. And so uh, in addition to our margins, uh, which are driven by, again, sales and operating expenses, I also look at weather forecasts uh, quite frequently. And so I uh, generally have a good idea as to what's coming down the pike in terms of weather. We get pretty good a fairly accurate 10 to 15 day forecast and we look at that both for the gas and the electric business and that does give us some visibility on how the top line's performing. So I look at that as well. And then to get a consolidated point of view, the other schedule I always have on my person is what I call or what we call our risk and opportunity schedule. And so as I look at the margins across gas and electric, what we also try to do is just try to anticipate all the ways in which the sky could fall. And so we have just a laundry list of risks. So whether it's weather, and we look at, say, 15-year average in our three worst years uh, in that 15-year period and what happened and how that impacted our earnings per share, and we say, okay, well, what could the effect be now that we're just one month left in the year? What's the implication of that? We look at uh, adverse regulatory outcomes and what the implications of that could be. Uh, as well as a number of other downside cases. And as we track those risks throughout the year, we try to make sure that we have identified uh, enough, I'll say, risk-mitigating opportunities to offset those risks. And so I have a schedule that shows our risks and opportunities that I look at, uh, I'll say, more than than, uh, every other hour. (laughs) I'll just put it through that way. We're always thinking about ways in which we can mitigate future risks And as we get towards the back half of the year, not only are we focused on making sure that we can deliver on our financial commitments in the current year, but then we start thinking about the prompt year or the subsequent year and saying, okay, if we're ahead of the plan uh, and uh, doing pretty well and have some upside, uh, is there spend or investments in the business that we can pull forward that can de-risk us in the subsequent year? So are there costs that we can pull ahead? And there's a double benefit there. Clearly, it de-risks your financial plan in the subsequent year, but it also helps your customers because if you can do uh, more uh, gas leak maintenance, more forestry, all of that uh, helps your uh, customers because it improves safety and improves the reliability of your system. And so uh, those are a few metrics that I look at quite religiously. 
you used the phrase a risk mitigating opportunity a few times. Can you get what would a risk mitigating opportunity be, for example? Yeah, so there are sort of, I'll say, shorter lead time risk mitigating opportunities, and then there are longer lead time risk mitigating opportunities. I'd say from a longer lead time perspective, uh, there's economic development. And so uh, every year we try to find ways in which we can, I guess, influence our commercial and industrial customers to either increase their power consumption, what we would call load in our sector. And so there are a few ways to do that. You can have a, let's say, a large industrial customer uh, in, increase uh, the facilities that they have in your service territory or open a new plant. Um, or have other customers or prospective industrial customers move into your service territory. And so, for an example, when an Amazon HQ2, when they start thinking about where they might locate, uh, we certainly work very closely with municipalities uh, and state legislators to see how we can help uh, the legislators and others uh, make the service territory more attractive and making sure we have competitive uh, rates uh, of power. And so we work very closely. Now, that's not going to be... Uh, the key decision-making factor for, say, an Amazon or somebody like that, but it's certainly an input. Um, and there's some businesses that are very energy-intensive and they're very mindful of their costs. So economic development, again, it's a longer lead time risk-mitigating factor, but we look at that. We look at whether or not uh, there are uh, financings that we can do prematurely to de-risk our plan. And so we, uh, for the last several years, have been very aggressive in taking out high-priced or high-coupon uh, bond securities that we have in our portfolio. And so for a number of years, we had coupons on our bonds that were in excess of 7 8%. And obviously, in this financing environment, uh, you can do much better than that. And so we would look to actively uh, pre-fund uh, debt maturities to uh, take a lot of cost out of our system. Uh, and so those are things that we do. And then also, uh, what we also try to look at is uh, whether or not uh, we can go and file um, a regulatory proceeding uh, to increase our rates if we have capital investment or operating spend that we need to seek recovery on. So those are all things that we can do uh, to mitigate some of the pending risk that we pursue over the course of the year, and that obviously helps us uh, meet our financial objectives in the current year and beyond. Some of what you illustrated for us in terms of, well, weather forecasting as well as other areas. Uh, it sort of underscores how sophisticated energy companies have been for a while in terms of accruing data related to outside circumstances where other industries are just beginning to get excited sort of about new sources of data that they're trying to tap in and measure opportunities. Am I overstating that? It seems to me that energy companies have, have really led the way in terms of uh, measuring risk and, and uh, just because of the weather, frankly, in, in, in some respects. Um, or am I oversimplifying this? Well, I, you know, I, I don't want to speak to the whole sector, but I can speak to at least what I've seen here in my 18 months in CMS, and I do think the company does a very good job really doing a few things. Again, planning conservatively, and so again, we uh, are never paranoid enough uh, and so when it comes to financial planning, we really try to look at all of the ways in which the sky can fall and make sure when we're thinking through our plan um, for weather, for example, again, we look at a 15-year average. That's a lot of data. Uh, we look at you know, the three worst years within that period, the three best years, and really try to make sure that uh, we can react to any scenario. Uh, we also, again, look at suboptimal regulatory outcomes because we have a number of proceedings that we file on an annual basis, and those can impact our 
revenues in a pretty material way. Uh, and then we look at storms. That's another source of variability in our business that we track. And so every year we have a budgeted amount for how much uh, service restoration will do uh, in the event there's a storm. Uh, and we can put, so we can put customers back online in an uh, expedited fashion. Uh, but uh, over the last couple of years, uh, we've had uh, storms in excess of what we budgeted for, and so that introduces risk. And so uh, going back to my initial comments, uh, we really try to take all of those vagaries into account and make sure we've got enough uh, risk mitigation in place. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't also mention that the other risk mitigating opportunities we look at are clearly cost savings opportunities within the year. And so we're always looking at ways in which we can reduce costs. I did mention uh, opportunities in the balance sheet. Uh, we've also looked at reducing our operating and maintenance expenses over the years. Uh, and we've really looked at every aspect of our cost structure to see where we can take out costs. If you exclude depreciation and amortization, our cost structure has about $5 billion within it. And Every aspect of that we view as an opportunity. So whether it's property, income taxes, interest expense, operating and maintenance, we have also fuel supply costs. We view all of those as opportunities to help us, again, manage uh, the vagaries and uncertainties of this business. And we've been very successful. Uh, I think from, I'm going to get the stat maybe a little off, but from 2006 to 2015, uh, we've reduced our operating and maintenance expense by 3% per year. And the sector average is inflation or an increase of about 4.5%. So we really try to make sure that we can, in addition to your question, uh, anticipate uh, weather trends and other vagaries, make sure, again, we've got enough risk mitigation in the plan to offset any downside or negative variance. I'd like to understand how you see finance evolving uh, in terms of the skills and professionals who are today part of your team. Uh, there's sort of the traditional finance organization certain sets of skills and titles uh, versus where the, everything you want to achieve, whether you have the right mix of skills today. Uh, I'm curious what your team's going to look like in three years. Are you going to be adding different skills? Are you going to be looking to, to, uh, to modify that team in some way? Is it, or is the traditional team just need to be sort of retooled in small ways? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, um, I would say that it's an ongoing um, thought process for how we can continually improve the skill set and composition and quality of the team we have. And I'll just say quite candidly, I inherited a very strong team when I stepped in here about 18 months ago, so I'm delighted with the hand I've been dealt. Um, but just thinking about the skill sets we have, I think for any finance function, whether it's a public or private company, you're going to need uh, a good amount of folks who are solid on the compliance side. Uh, that is just the reality of the world in which we live, and we have people who are very good at that. And so you'll always need a core amount of folks, whether it's on the tax side, whether it's on the accounting side, internal audit. You'll need folks who are very good at compliance and can manage that process well, and so there will always be a home for folks like that. In addition to that, uh, I think uh, particularly given the world in which we live, you're going to need people who are pretty savvy on the technological side as well. Uh, there's been uh, certainly some advancements with respect to robotic process automation, which allows closing processes to be uh, faster than they are uh, over the past four or five years, and we're looking at and exploring some of those opportunities. But with that, uh, if you implement such types of software, you're going to need skill sets that can 
uh, manage that type of software. And so uh, we want to always make sure that we get people who are fast on the technology. And so that doesn't necessarily have to sit in finance. Uh, maybe in some cases that's coordination with IT, but we want certainly the people who are going to use the software to be fast on it. And so making sure we have people who are technologically adept is something we also want to make sure we have. And I always, I always try to find folks, uh, certainly at the leadership level, uh, but generally throughout um, the finance function who also have good advisory skills. So again, when you think about the skills that you need, a number of people who are very good at compliance because you got to get the books right. Um, you also need people who are technologically savvy. And I also think you need people who have good advisory skills because I think uh, as you look at the evolution of the CFO role or any finance role, uh, where you can add tremendous value to those folks who can uh, provide significant input around resource allocation, strategic business decisions, um, and making sure that uh, senior team or C-level executives understand the financial implications of decisions and how the investment community and other key stakeholders will react to those decisions. So having people who have good, I'll say, finance knowledge and just uh, good advisory skills or, or another skill set that I'm looking to build out. And then lastly, I would submit uh, I uh, will always be a proponent of diversity and, diversity and inclusion and always want to make sure that the team continues to have a team that uh, really has, uh, I'll say, uh, a broad skill set and broad knowledge base, whether that's functionally, ethnically, gender-wise, et cetera. I'm always looking for diversity there. I used to have a mentor who would tell me, well, who's smarter, the person who reads the same newspaper four times or the person who reads four different newspapers? And clearly the latter gives you a broader perspective. And so I don't think you can ever be complacent around those the level of diversity you have, and so I'm always looking to make sure uh, that we continually have uh, diverse representation within our team. We'll be back with CFO Reggie Hayes after these words from our sponsor. Technology adoption, business partnership, strategic direction, resource optimization, and honestly, scalability. Right, We are past the point in business of throwing people to solve problems. Like, let's take a five-second pause and RIP to that business strategy, right? <laughs> you can't just throw people to solve problems anymore. Hi, I'm Rowan Tonkin, your host at Being Planful. You just heard from Chris Ortega, a recent guest on the show. If you want to hear from guests like Chris talking about today's trends for tomorrow's FBA leaders, you can subscribe at beingplanful.com wherever you get your podcast. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. I want to ask you our, our standard question here, which is for a finance strategic moment, and this is where your lines of sight into the organization, either at CMS or earlier in your career. 
allowed you to identify a risk or an opportunity that was pursued or identified, and uh, uh, you were able to either you know change course, uh, pursue an opportunity, whatever it might have been. Does when I ask for a finance strategic moment, does anything come to mind? I'll, I'm going to err on the side of. Uh Humility and say, you know, in my 18 months here so far, I, I can't think of any material uh, opportunities, but what I or, or situations. But what I can offer up is that what I've always tried to do wherever I've gone, and this is really a guiding principle of mine, is that I don't think there's any substitute for transparency. And so, uh, wherever I've gone, I've tried to make sure that um, the financial performance of the business is broadly disseminated. Uh, now, obviously, you can't provide quarterly information. Uh, around EPS too broadly within the employee base, but when it comes to reporting to the senior management team, the executive team, the broader employee base, trying to provide as much information as possible so people can understand the context, the key drivers of financial performance, and also, uh, most importantly, how the work that they do contribute to the financial performance because that gets people to buy in uh, to the financial performance of the business and have uh, real interest in how the how the business is performing. And so a few examples of that uh, are at the senior team level. You know, I think it's not uh, unique to offer monthly reporting to senior teams or executives. Every company does that. But what I've done, at least in my two CFO opportunities, I've really tried to dig into the reports that are currently provided and try to see if there's any additional granularity we can provide without making the content exhaustive. And so really trying to highlight key salient points and give as much context and transparency as possible to the executives, uh, particularly those who are on the operating side of the business and engineering side of the business, because the more uh, knowledge they have on the key drivers of financial performance, the better decisions they can make and the more prudent resource allocation decisions they can make, particularly as you go through the course of a year. Uh, what I also try to do, and this is more for the broader employee base, is um, at both ITC and CMS, uh, I've done quarterly uh, earnings calls. So after the formal earnings call that we have with the investment community, I'll do a video um, where I offer up maybe 10 to 15 minutes uh, about just some of the key, uh, I'll say, salient points around the quarter and really try to provide some context uh, for the broader employee base as to how the work that they're doing has impacted our financials. So, for example, on our Q3 call, we highlighted the fact that the business was ahead of budget and plan. Uh, nine months into the year, and so we had some upside, and as a result of that, we were executing uh, pull ahead. And so this goes back to my point around de-risking subsequent years. And so we're pulling ahead expected um, initiatives and costs from 2019 into 2018 uh, to de-risk our plan and basically reduce costs in advance of stepping into 2019. And so the employees uh, throughout the company are impacted by that because they do the work, and so. Uh, giving them some context on how the work that they're doing impacts the financials and helps us de-risk future plans, I think they found that quite helpful. And so I did that both uh, in my prior life at ITC, and we just started instituting that at CMS, and I think that's been appreciated. Uh, another thing we've done, uh, and this is a bit more, uh, I'll say at the program manager or, or officer or field supervisor level, is we just implemented uh, a software reporting tool uh, that allows, uh, at least for uh, select uh, functions, uh, the ability to get real-time unit cost reporting uh, so that within a month, uh, a program manager can understand how efficiently 
uh, their specific business unit or function is performing, and it allows them, more importantly, the ability to pivot in the event uh, they're not being as productive as they'd like, or if there's some sort of gap between their productivity expectations. And so we implemented that uh, over the course of this year. We still have some enhancements we need to make, but I think that has been very well received. Um, and it, uh, again, we implemented the first half of this year and still making tweaks to it, but the program managers and our field supervisors have found great utility and value in it um, since we put it in place. And uh, again, it allows them to make intra-month decisions and get real-time data. And the benefit of that, I mean, obviously no one closed your books at month end, but if you can get unit cost information at minimum, you can tell again whether you're winning or losing over the course of a month. Excellent. Great, great example. Thank you. Those are, those are wonderful. Um, and they speak to uh, a lot that's happening, I think, in, in other finance uh, uh, functions as well. That's, that's great. Um, I want to move to our mentoring round where I'm going to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and uh, inform future finance leaders. We want to know what's exciting you now about business and finance. What is it that's really energizing you? Yeah, and uh, I don't want to sound too dorky here, but <laughs> I think um, there, there's quite a bit that's taken place over the last um, several months that just offers just continuous dynamism in the function itself and I think also within our sector. And so within finance, uh, again, technological advancements around uh, robotic process automation, I think, again, that's going to lead to cost savings and efficiencies and really streamlined closing processes, and we've started to implement that across uh, select functions within our organization. I think that that is obviously creating opportunities, and uh, that is uh, that, that's quite exciting. Uh, and then we've had pieces of legislation that have led to a lot of opportunities, as well as challenges, candidly, but uh, interesting all the same. So tax reform being enacted uh, at the end of 2017, and given the timing as well, really right at the end as you're trying to close the books for 2017, that created uh, quite a bit of, uh, I'll say, angst within the organization, but, um, you know, like everything else, we had uh, tried to anticipate uh, how uh, the legislation was going to come out, and obviously, like we always do, we tried to first identify the risks and make sure we had enough risk mitigation to offset those risks, and actually it ended up being a net positive for our business, and so, um, you know, again, it, it still continues to evolve. There were some regs that came out uh, earlier this week uh, that we're still digesting, and so that's led to, obviously, a bit of dynamism and excitement. Uh, and then within our sector, um, there clearly are some advancements uh, around renewable power. Uh, it continues to get cheaper, and that's going to create opportunities, particularly as utilities think about their power generation capacity and ways in which they can serve customers who uh, have increasing demand for renewable power. So I'd say uh, there's quite a bit that's exciting on the regulatory, technological, and finance front, uh, it's keeping us busy. What do you wish someone had told you at the start of your CFO career? And this question is really intended that first time you had all that leadership responsibility, the first time you stepped into a CFO role. What comes to mind when I say, what, what, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? Yeah, I would say two. There are two items. I'd say one, you probably can't be paranoid enough in this role. Um, you have to constantly think about risks and risk management, risk mitigation, risk tolerance. And so you really can't 
and be too sure about uh, the financial performance or operational performance of the business because the sky can fall in many ways. And so just making sure you're anticipating uh, downside risk and managing those. And there'll be places where you can't manage everything. And so just making sure you understand your risk tolerance as well as how you might mitigate risks you can't live with. Um, and so I don't think you'd be paranoid enough. Uh, the other one, and this is a bit more flippant, but uh, you really shouldn't get too emotional over the stock price. Uh, I used to look at it constantly, particularly when I was in my first CFO role, and would take it personally if the stock traded off, particularly if it did so on a market-adjusted basis where you take out the sector performance. And so <laughs> I had more than one uh, senior executive uh, <laughs> CEO say, look, uh, try to just focus on the day-to-day. -day. Don't get too emotional of the stock because, you know, obviously Mr. Marcus can be irrational at times. And at the end of the day, if you're focused on long-term execution, long-term value creation, eventually the market will catch up. We want to discover a little bit about yourself here, a little more personal nature. Wondering if you have a personal habit or routine that you in some way believe contributed to your professional success. Yeah, in the interest of full transparency, I would say that I'm generally pretty insecure about what I don't know. Uh, and as a result of that, I basically read everything I can get my hands on, uh, which has been helpful because it's basically fueled uh, a pretty uh, high level of intellectual curiosity and it's allowed me to climb curves pretty quickly uh, because, you know, I was a banker for several years, as I mentioned, so I was a generalist and covered a bunch of sectors during my time and always had to get up to speed on a new sector. And then when I stepped into power and energy, that was the one sector I didn't cover as a, as a banker. And so there was plenty to curb to climb and wherever I've gone, whether it was Exelon, ITC, now CMS, there are always new things to learn. And so I have this inherent insecurity about what I don't know. And so try to spend as much time as I can uh, learning. And it's not just reading, it's spending time with colleagues. I was just on a tour today of one of our, one of our uh, service centers in Jackson. And so, yeah, I am uh, just perpetually insecure about what I don't know, and that's been helpful. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Yeah, I would say I'm biased, of course, towards the power and energy sector. And so I would point folks to uh, Conspiracy of Fools by Kirk Eichenwald. Um, that was about the rise and fall of Enron. Um, and so it's, it's a pretty meaty read, but he writes in a way a lot like Michael Lewis, where it's just it's very digestible, even though there's a lot of complicated situations that he highlights. And it really does do a couple of things. It gives you a nice primer on the power and energy sector, but also, I think more importantly, the dangers of weak controls, poor risk management, misaligned incentives, you name it. Um, it's basically the antithesis of uh, built to last uh, by James Collins, which is another good one, but um, I view it as equally informative. So that's that's what I'd recommend. Okay, we're up to our final question, where we get to ask you to look forward. Finally, what are your priorities when it comes uh, to being a finance leader over the next 12 months? Yeah, so I'd say I break that up into two ways. I'd say there's kind of near term and longer term, and it's all over the next 12 months. But in the near term, obviously. Uh, we're stepping into December, and so we're focused on meeting our financial objectives for the calendar year. Uh, so very focused on uh, making sure, again, with the risks that remain over the course of the year, that we have enough risk mitigation to manage those risks um, and mitigate them. Uh, obviously, it's that time year two when we're thinking about the budget for 2019, and we do a rolling five-year plan. And so uh, this is a period of time where CFOs become a lot less popular across the organization because you have to... <laughs> Uh, exhibit discipline and, uh, you know, there are finite resources and so at times you have to be the party of no. 
Uh, so uh, very focused on that in the near term. And uh, I'll say just a longer term and just ongoing things is, again, I can't learn enough about the operational side of this business. Um, like I said, CMS has more scale and scope than my prior company, and so I spend every, as much time as I can out in the field uh, with our operators trying to learn the business. Um, and then uh, continuing to work with the senior team on our long-term strategy. So we do a rolling five-year plan, but we also spend time looking out the years six to ten um, and trying to think through, okay, are there disruptive or emerging technologies coming around? Can we mitigate those? Are there opportunities we should take on? And those are all things that we try to think about collectively. Uh, and then again, it's a, this is ongoing, just continuing to mold uh, the finance culture within CMS. I think we, like I said, I've been dealt a very good hand. It's a wonderful team, but there are always things we can do to continuously improve. And I mentioned the composition and DNI, or sorry, diversity and inclusion, and always making sure that we've got the right skill sets and perspectives within the company. So those are all things I'm kind of focused on in the next 12 months or so. Richard Hayes, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Jack, thanks so much for your time. Hey, don't forget, we're always happy to hear from you. Drop me an email at jack at cfothoughtleader.com. As always, thank you for listening.